Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. I have a lot of good memories of childhood. I grew up here in South Florida. Uh, but one of the memories I have from being a kid is riding in the back seat of our car on I-95. And you know how it is as a kid in the back seat of the car. You get bored after a while. Um, But one of the things that I remember about being on I-95 as a kid was this unique structure, which is between Commercial and Oakland Park on the north side of the street. And I I just have memories of this thing from all the way back to when I was a little kid because it's been there forever. And every time we would drive by it, I would look at it and go, what is that thing? And all these questions would go up in my mind, and then as soon as we drive by, I would forget about it. But, but every time I drive by, the questions come back. What, what is this thing? What is this unique structure? Who built it? And what do they do in a hurricane? When a hurricane comes, like, how do they keep that from just tipping over and the glass from cracking? But then more so, you know, if you look at it, it's actually a display for a kitchen and bathroom renovation store and each little window has a different kitchen and bathroom renovation scene. And so one of the questions that I've had is, how do they get all that stuff up there? Like, is it a crane and they take off the windows every time? Or do they have just like some really strong guy on staff who somehow, I don't even know if there's a stairwell in there, he just carries the stuff up the stairwell, he just hoists the toilet over his shoulder and carries it to the top? I don't know, but I have all these different questions about what that thing is, and it's been there for decades and decades and decades. And so this week, I was like, I'm going to find out. And I looked them up online. They don't have a website. No one picked up when I called. So it's still a mystery. (laughs) It's still a mystery. And if you know someone that works there, if they could get me a tour of this thing, I would go, because it's just so intriguing to me, this unique structure. But all those questions are good, but that's not really what that structure is for. That structure is really about giving us a sneak peek of a different way of living. It's about as we drive by going, what would happen if I painted my bathroom that color? What would happen if I renovated the room with that decoration? How would my life be different if I did what I see in there? Today, we're going to be looking at the church in Jerusalem and the church in Berea, and you can picture as we look at these texts and these pictures of the churches that we're kind of driving by, looking in, just as on 95 you drive and look into that structure. But rather than showing us decorations and design, rather than going, what would my life be like if I implemented that stuff in my life in terms of decorations and designs, really what we're going to see as we drive by the church in Jerusalem and as we drive by the church in Berea is what our lives might be like if we depended more on God. What our lives would be like if we depended more on God. What would my life be like if I relied on him in a deeper way? What would your life be like if you depended on him in a new way that you had not before? What would our church community be like if if we saw the way the early church depended on God and we tried to put it into practice in our own life? Today, we're going to be talking about dependence, a different way of looking. As we look at the church in Jerusalem, 
and the church in Berea. So what's happened in the church in Jerusalem, you'll remember that when we did Acts chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, uh, there was really no pushback for this growing church community. They were loving on each other. They were sharing the gospel. And more people were coming to know Jesus, and there was no pushback. But in chapter 4, there starts to be pushback. Peter and John perform a miracle. They heal someone who's sick, and they do it in the name of Jesus. And the officials of the temple in Jerusalem do not like it. And so what they do is they call Peter and John before, him and pe- before them, and Peter and John get in trouble. And they say, Peter and John, shut up about Jesus. And Peter and John say, look, we can only just talk about what we've seen Jesus do. That's all we're doing, and we can't really obey you because we have to obey God because God sent Jesus. And at this point, they come back to the community and report on everything that they had seen and everything that had happened in terms of the temple officials pushing back. In verse 23 in chapter 4, it says, After they, that's Peter and John, were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. This is the first time that the early church has experienced pushback against their faith in Jesus Christ. The powers that be are against them displaying the power of God in Jesus. And what do they do? Well, they pray. They prayerfully depend on God's power. In verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In verse 25 and 26, they continue to pray and they said, You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant. And then they pray, but they pray the Bible. They pray Psalm 2 from the Old Testament that says, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and his Messiah. What they're praying in this moment is they recognize that God has always had pushback against what he's trying to do in the world from the powers that be on earth. And therefore, God's anointed, the Messiah, Jesus, experienced pushback from the powers that be on earth. And therefore, as God's people in this moment, they will experience pushback from the powers that be on earth. They continue to pray. In verse 27, they say, For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Now, there is a whole sermon right there in that verse, but what they're praying is Jesus is part of the purposes of God on earth. And the powers that be are always pushing back against what God's trying to do. That's why they push back on Jesus. That's why they crucified Jesus. But we're also part of that story. We're part of the Jesus story. So we shouldn't be surprised when the powers that be push back against us trying to spread the good news of Jesus. And then they pray this in verse 29. And now, Lord, consider their threats And grant that your servants may speak your word with all what? Boldness. 
while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In their prayers, they're depending on God's power. They're in a position of powerlessness where the powers that be are pushing back on them, yet that doesn't stop them from praying for God's power to be at work in them, that they might remain bold with the good news. And what happens when they pray with this expectant faith? Verse 31 tells us, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now, when they prayed, God's power showed up. When they depended on God in prayer, God's mighty hand was at work among them. Now, we don't quite know what it means that the building shook, whether there was an earthquake or God literally shook the building, but we're meant to go, God showed up with power. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had already been baptized by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But they're asking the power of God to come again on them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when they ask for that, the Spirit comes. And when they ask that the Lord would help them be bold when the powers that be are pushing back against them, God helps them be bold. And they speak the word of God boldly. As we drive by the Jerusalem church, What would our lives look like if we depended on God's power through prayer? Well, I think that like the early church, we would be able to live in the moment on mission. We'd be able to live in the moment on mission. What's interesting to me is what the church here doesn't pray. They could pray, Lord, take away this pushback. Stop the powers that be from pushing back against us, but rather they live in the moment going, if they push back against Jesus, they will push back against us. But in that moment, when we're getting pushed back against us, help us to stand firm and speak the word of God boldly. Too often, I think we pray to get out of the moment and get out of mission rather than living in the moment on mission, whether you're getting pushback from your family or pushback at work. The power of God is present there through prayer to help us live in the moment on mission. I mentioned Pastor Macklin earlier. I hope that Pastor Macklin can come visit us in January when he's in the United States because uh, he's such a bold man who lives by prayer. And when he moved back from the United States back to his home country in West Africa, he was experiencing pushback. He was poisoned by a neighbor. He experienced disease in his body, and he has even been betrayed by people very close to him. And yet the ministry is flourishing because they have depended on God's power through prayer. And that power that is available to the church in Acts is the same power that's available to us to help us live on mission, even in our weakness. See, I think the second thing that we can learn from this is how to live in weakness in the midst of our mission to share Jesus. You and I often live as if weakness, our human weakness, our frailties, our limits, our idiosyncrasies, our failures, we live as if those things somehow cancel the power of God. 
We live as if those things cancel the power of God. God, I, I want to represent you at work, but I'm afraid. Period. End of story. I want to share Jesus with somebody, but last time I did it, I didn't say the right thing. Lord, I, I'm nervous to love my neighbor because I just don't know if it'll have an effect. I don't really have the skills. I've failed before. But here's the thing. The people in this church are just like you and me. They are weak. They have failed. They struggle with sin. And yet the power of God is present for them in their weakness. God's power is there for us when we pray despite our failures, despite our skill level. Despite if we've gone back to the sin that we thought we'd never go back to, God's power is still available to us so that we can be who we are. We're weak people who struggle. And yet when the power of God is present with us, we can be empowered for mission. But that only comes as we pray. Thirdly, I think that we can see here how to live praying bold prayers of expectant faith. Bold prayers of expectant faith. They pray, Lord, help us to speak with boldness. They pray, Lord, stretch out your mighty hand. God helps them speak with boldness. Check. God's spirit is present. Check. God's power is made known among them. Check. They ask for something boldly with expectant faith, and God shows up and answers their prayers. See, all too often, you and I don't pray bold prayers of expectant faith because we stop at praying around prayers just to survive. Just to survive. This week, this week, uh, we had a, my wife and I found out we had to put a new septic tank in, and there's nothing more boring about adult life than talking with a septic tank guy about which models of septic tank you have to put in your ground. And at times when that kind of stuff happens, I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm just trying to survive, you know? Do you ever feel that way? I'm just trying not to fail out of class. I'm just trying to pay the bills. I'm just trying to raise kids who aren't monsters. I'm just trying to find someone to marry who's a halfway decent human being. I'm just trying to not get divorced. And we stop with praying prayers of survival instead of praying prayers of bold faith. Expecting God to show up because God's power wants to come in the midst of your weakness. Whether you fail, whether you do or don't pay your bills, whether your marriage is struggling or whether it's not, whether you're challenged in how to raise your kids, you are the people that God's power is available to. So pray bold prayers of expectant faith. Don't sell yourself short of only surviving when God wants to make his power known to you as you are. But pray for God to show up in the midst of those struggles. Jesus warns us in the parable of the sower that the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth can choke out the word of God in us. And so all that stuff that you feel is real, but it's also, as Gordon preached on once, it's also a choking hazard for your faith. And so pray bold prayers of faith that God would help you in the midst of your struggles and trials because these people are struggling and God answers their prayers. In fact, you can depend on God to bring his power when you pray 
because God himself is dependable. God promises to hear all our prayers, and his character is that he's utterly faithful. And so when you pray, God shows up. You can cast your cares on him. You can pray that he would make you into a bold witness for him, because it's really not about you. It's about his power and his dependability to come and meet you in the midst of weakness. So pray boldly. Depend on God's power through prayer. Charles Spurgeon has this great image. He says, prayer pulls the rope below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell for they pray so languidly, which means like, eh. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins heaven, he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. Friends, when you pray and you depend on God's power through prayer, God will show up. So ring the bell of prayer frequently and often. And as we look at this early church in Acts, we see that they prayerfully depended on God's power, but that they also model something else for us, a participatory independent interdependence as God's people. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. And I'm going to unpack that for you. Verse 32 through 37, or through 35 in chapter 4. Verse 32 says, this is right after, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. They're completely united. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Listen to this. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as he had need. Now, some people have read this and been like, look, the Bible supports communism. And that's not what this is all because com- is at all because communism is forced. And this is a voluntary participation in selling your goods. This is the Holy Spirit showing up in this community and making it so that people are sacrificially selling their stuff and giving it away to care for the most needy among them. So, so- sometimes it's funny to ask, hey, do- who wants to be full of the Holy Spirit? And everyone goes, yeah, and you go, sell your stuff and give it away. (laughs) No, you know. (laughs) But that's what this Holy Spirit is doing. It's not just a dependence, but it's an interdependence. Dependence is to say, I can rely on this wall not to move. But an interdependence is we can rely on each other to prop each other up. And it's like what I said a couple weeks ago, that, that girl who said, Lord Jesus, help me to see that I'm not okay if someone else is not okay. Even if I'm okay, if you're not okay, then I'm not okay. See, the problem is this seems so crazy in our cultural moment because what we're seeing in our culture is not a culture of sacrificial love, but as Donna and Tom say, 
Treat yourself. You ever see Parks and Rec? Treat yourself. I think we got a picture of them. There they are. Donna Smeagol and Tom Haverford from the show Parks and Rec, they have an annual Treat Yourself Day. And what's, what they do is they, they go back and forth, and Tom's like, I want Jaguar fluffy slippers. And Donna goes, treat yourself. And he goes and buys them. And then Donna goes, I want to spend two days at the spa. And Tom goes, treat yourself. And we live in a treat yourself culture where whatever you want for yourself, you take, you get. Life's all about you. But that's not what we see as we drive by this first church here in Jerusalem. We see rather than treat yourself, a community full of sacrificial love. What would that look like in our lives? Well, I I remember a pastor told me a story, or someone told me a story about another church that had all these ministries that were there to serve the most needy people in the church. And at one point, the ministry started to run dry. And this was right around tax refund season. And this was right around when big screen TVs were all the rage. And the pastor just said to the church, hey, no pressure here, but we just want to let you know, these ministries that serve the most needy among us, these ministries are almost out of money. And I know tax refund season is coming up. And I know all everybody wants a big screen TV. What do you want to do? What kind of church do we want to be? Do we want to be a treat yourself church? Or do we want to be a church that participates in being interdependent as God's people. And without guilt, without shame, the people said, caring for the most needy among us is more important than me getting a TV. The world does not need more churches full of people endlessly watching TV. The world needs churches who see the sacrificial love of Jesus and model that sacrificial love to each other. See, here at New City, we hope to be a got-your-back church in a watch-your-back world, where if someone else is in trouble, we step in. And rather than saying, your problems are your problems, we say, your problems are my problems, because we're family, because we're community. Now, that doesn't mean we can fix everything. I've had people in church ask me to pay for college before, and I'm like, can't do that, sorry. But at the same time, if you're hungry and you can't eat... That should not be so, because we're family. I think the funny thing, as I thought about this community, the challenge when we hear a call like this to sacrificially love everyone else in our church community, we go, yeah, someone else should do that. Someone else should do that. Someone else should sacrificially love. My heart does that. But someone had to be the first person in the story to sell their possessions. There had to, there had to be someone who first said, I've got this thing that I don't need, and I could help this person who can't pay for their food if I sold it. Someone had to go first. But it ultimately wasn't that someone in the story went first. It's that Jesus went first. Jesus saw our great need, that we needed reconciliation with God, that our our sins separated us from God. And rather than just giving a part of himself, he gave all of himself on the cross that you and I could be restored to God. And so it's not even just that we look at the church, we look at Jesus and what he's done for us. And that's where the motivation to be self-sacrificing comes from. Because you can sacrifice, but do it out of guilt or shame or self-righteousness. We don't want to do that. We want to see the love of Jesus and see how he's loved us 
and see how though he was rich, he became poor so that by his poverty we became rich in our relationship with God. And then mimic that with our stuff and have open hands. And that's exactly what Barnabas does. In verse 36 and verse 37, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas. You'll remember that Barnabas showed up in Acts 11 later on, but here it's like our first look at him. Barnabas is translated son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is pretty significant for Barnabas because he is a Jewish man, but he lives on the island of Cyprus outside of the Holy Land. And what this means is that this piece of land is part of his family's stake in the land that God has promised, the promised land. It is deeply significant. It's not just familial, it's spiritual. And yet he sacrifices that in order to take care of the most needy among us. What would it look like for us to participate in being interdependent as God's people? Well, it might be something as simple as going out of your way to make sure someone's okay. It might be giving someone a ride home after church that's really not convenient for you. Or it might, it might be seeing someone who's in financial need and, and helping take care of that need. It really might be that. And as we step into those things and say, God, help us, as your people care for one another, something gets displayed to the world. A church that's not treat yourself, but a church that sacrificially loves. I don't know if you've ever been on the end of someone really giving up something that mattered to them in order that you could benefit. It's a huge thing in your life. Your life has changed because someone else's sacrificial love, and it's never the same, and you remember that moment. And what we're called to as the people of God is to see the sacrifice of Jesus for us and mimic that to each other so that we could participate in being interdependent as God's people. Well, we're going to fast forward about 13 chapters to Acts 17. We've talked about modeling interdependence as God's people and prayerful dependence on God's power. But lastly, we're going to talk about passionate dependence on God's word. Uh, The story that we're jumping into is that Paul has been traveling around on a missionary journey. and He's been sharing the good news. And he goes to Thessalonica, which is in Greece. And he goes to the synagogue there, the Jewish hub in Thessalonica, and he begins to preach the gospel. And in that particular city, they run him off. He, he, he has to sneak out at night. Verse 10, chapter 17. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of Jews. Verse 11. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Keep it back on verse 11 for me. I want to unpack that just for a minute. So Paul rolls up in Berea. He's been run out of Thessalonica. He goes and he talks to his fellow Jews, and he's like, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the hope of Israel. All of the story of God has been heading to what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross 
resurrected from the tomb and ascended into heaven. And the Bereans immediately open up their Old Testament. And they begin searching the scriptures to see if what Paul is saying about Jesus actually matches what their Bible says. They're, they're probably opening up to the prophecies in Isaiah about this servant who would come and be marred for the sins of many. They're probably opening up to places like Micah and seeing the prophecies about the one coming being born in Bethlehem. They're looking at all the things that point to the Messiah and seeing if what Paul tells them about the Messiah matches with their Bibles. And it says that the people there were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, which is a way of saying, like, they just better (laughs) because they examined their Bibles since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You know, there's a lot of ministries that are called Berean ministries. It's a popular phrase within uh, Christianity. And what it means is like a passionate investigation of the word of God, like going deep into the word of God and being discerning about what people are saying to make sure it aligns with the word of God. And I think that's helpful for us because being a Berean means a passionate dependence on God's word. It says that they are, in verse 11, they receive the word, which means they're open to it. That word receive is like being hospitable. So they're like, come on in. But they receive the word with eagerness and examination. In other words, they're passionate and investigative. They're eager and they examine. And I think that's helpful for us as we think about what it might be to be a Berean and passionately depend on God's word because all too often we can be passionate about God's word without really investigating what's being said. So let me say it this way. There's a whole lot of amens that happen in churches where the people should not be saying amen because what the pastor is saying doesn't line up with the word of God. That's true. And my hope is for you that you wouldn't just take my word for it, but you'd have your Bibles open. You'd be passionate about it, but you'd be investigating it as well. Passion for the word goes with investigation of the word. And notice that Paul doesn't rebuke the Bereans for investigating what he says. Because he believes it's true and he believes the Bible will back it up. And so being a Berean means being passionate but also investigating. But it does also mean being passionate. I think too often we can investigate and grow really big theological dictionaries in our head without ever being passionate about what the Word actually says. Eager to have our lives changed by the good news of Jesus. And so being a Berean is not just passion with investigation, but it's also investigation with eagerness and passion. Because this is God's Word. And we're called to be open to it and receive it like Someone who's inviting someone over to their house and being hospitable. I think at times as Christians, it's hard to remain open to the word. It's hard to receive it with eagerness and examination. One of the reasons is just life gets busy. We don't have time to really get into it. Another reason I've seen is that people often will get hurt by the church. And then what happens is... They take that hurt 
and they bring it to this book, and they begin critiquing this book, not realizing that their critique of this book can come from their hurt that happened in the church. And that's real. That's true. Sometimes the church can't hurt people. But I would encourage you, do your critiques of this book come from an intellectual desire to know, or is it really a heart-hurt issue? They're both real. But sometimes I find that people listen to critiques of the Bible. They listen to podcasts and books that constantly critique the Bible, but they never think to critique the critiquer. I listen to a lot of podcasts that critique this book. I I read books that critique this book. And I critique those critiques because some of them aren't valid. And I believe that almost every question you have about this book has an answer somewhere. Has an answer somewhere. So bring your questions to this book, but be open to getting the answers because sometimes people avoid actually receiving the word by a defense mechanism of endlessly asking questions. Not every time, but that does happen. And we're called to be open to receive God's word because when we receive God's word and we're open to it and we search it with eagerness and examination, with passion and investigation, what it does is it leads to belief. It leads to a deep dependence and trust in God. That's what happens in Berea. Verse 12. Consequently, in other words, because they examined the scriptures with passion, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. God's word is sufficient. It's dependable to tell us who God is, what his plan is for salvation, and what it's like to experience relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And so we can passionately depend on God's word because God himself is dependable. We can passionately depend on God's word because God's word is dependable. His word is dependable. His power is dependable when we pray. And as a people, we are learning to be interdependent. We're learning to mimic God's character to each other. And so as we look at the church in Berea, as we look at the church in Jerusalem, as we see how they depended on God's word and they depended on God's power and how they were participating in interdependence, let me encourage you, don't just drive by. Don't just drive by and see what God was doing in these communities and go, oh, maybe one day my life would be different. No, no, no. Take dependability home with you and implement it in your life. Pray with boldness. Give yourself sacrificially away. Trust God's word and investigate it with passion. Don't just drive by and see what your life could be without actually taking it home. Take dependence home with you. Because if you do, it will help you live differently. And it will help me live differently. And it will help us together live differently as the people of God. God is utterly dependable. And we know this because in his great love for us, while you and I were still sinners, Jesus was sent to die for people who were not dependable, but much worse, people who were sinners like you and me. 
God didn't wait till we became dependable. He did not wait until we got our act together. He was faithful to send Jesus to die for us while you and I were a mess in rebellion against God. But Jesus came so that we might know God's faithfulness to us and might find him utterly dependable, that we might rely on him. So take dependability home with you. Pray with passion. Give yourself away to other people in the church and rely on God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the faithful one and you are utterly dependable. We just pray that you would help us implement these things in our life, that you would help us pray with more expectancy, that you would help us love with more sacrifice, and that you would give us a deep passion to know you through your word. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.